Golden Spiral Media presents Dark Matter, a fan podcast dedicated to Extant on CBS. Each week, Mike and Dave explore the mysteries, characters, and drama that unfold on Extant, and they want to hear from you too. Send in your thoughts by calling 304-837-2278 or visiting goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback. Now, here are your hosts, Mike and Dave. Hello, we're glad you could join us for this installment of Dark Matter, an extant podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number nine, where we'll be talking about season one, episode 11 of the CBS summer event series, Extant. This episode is entitled A New World and aired on September 3rd, 2014. And A New World was written by Eliza Clark and directed by Kevin Dowling. have to say, Dave, it was kind of a relief to be going back to one episode to discuss tonight. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, we're actually not going to get much of a break in general. I just wanted to make sure we mentioned it briefly last week, but but we didn't make an actual announcement about our next venture. Right after Extant finishes up, the week right after that, is the fall premiere season. And Dave and I will be continuing with Golden Spiral Media and doing a podcast about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. called The Sandbox. Very excited. Yeah, and we've been doing our rewatch are you finished with that yet, Dave? <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm at uh, the point where Sky. Oh no, we might have some listeners that haven't seen it at all yet. So uh, I'm ha- I'm just past the halfway mark. Okay, and I'm not even that far. So <laughs> should be interesting. So we'll be going right into that venture. If you guys watch that show, then I highly recommend checking out our podcast because it's going to be a lot of fun. But in the meantime, we've got this extant thing going on, and I'll tell you, I I run across critiques every now and then, Dave, that I kind of. I'm going along with even when they're critical. And I guess I was pretty open about how critical I was about last week's episode, the double episode last week where it was kind of creature of the week like. But there was one in particular that kind of praised the series and at the same time sh- highlighted its shortcomings. And I just want to read a little bit from an article on Screen Spy, which uh, I will link in the show notes. They said, Extant is something of a skeletal framework. Its plot line is strong, even if there's nothing really holding it together. The characters should be the glue in the complicated conspiracy-addled storyline, but they seem to be barely there themselves. Their motivations may be explained to us and are sometimes contradicted, but the emotional resonance is still lacking, as if the show's been moving through an outline from one planned bullet point to the next without sparing any time to fill in anything. And... While I find that slightly overstated, I kind of get what they're going for, Dave. The characters being not quite as strong as the plot itself. Well, I I agree, but I guess my feeling is that do we always have to develop the characters in depth? I mean, and and I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive because we've got one season of 13 episodes and, you know, whether or not there was going to be a season two, nobody really knew. And obviously we like well-developed characters, but you know, here I think the plot line is so strong and the, and the uh, storyline is just so complex that really, I, I think experienced genre viewers 
really don't have any idea where this is really headed. I mean, we, we think we do. And the characters, granted, they could be better developed. But on, on the other hand, you know, you got a bunch of characters that at the end of the day, I'm not sure they really like each other. And I think that shows. Yeah. So you're talking about the lack of chemistry. Yeah. And I actually must say that this episode in particular did give us a little bit for Yasumoto. Didn't go totally in depth, but you can certainly see his motivations now. And I did like the little bit we got about Kern and his father and some of the motivations there. So it's not everybody that, that it feels that way with, but, but I just thought that was an interesting way to put it. But luckily, everything seems to be calming down a little bit with the ratings. Yeah, you know, 5.78 million viewers, 1.0 share. It seems like I'm saying the same thing each week. And, and I guess that's fine. I guess the people that like it are sticking with it. You don't have people jumping ship. And, and I, gosh, if you've gone this far <laughs> and, and you're not interested in how it's going to turn out, then I, I don't know what to say to you. But clearly, these people are sticking with it. Obviously, there are a lot of websites that are predicting its demise, which I'm not sure how to feel about it because like like we've been saying, like under the dome, the plan was really just for one season and then we'd take it from there. TV Watch US has downgraded it from a likely cancellation to a certain cancellation due to all the schedule changes. And, I, you know, they, there was the one time change. And then, of course, the doubling up of episodes. Right. But all of which was unplanned. So, yeah, I see where they're coming from. We, we'll include that article in the show notes as well. And it's just some interesting reading and whether or not you agree with them or not is another story. But I guess it's time to go ahead and get into our Dark Matter episode discussion. The one question that seems to be hanging over everything at this point revolves around the offspring. Is it malevolent or is it frightened? And, you know, as we get into this, uh, I'll certainly make my thoughts known on that. And, and I guess I'm not sure why there's really a question, but, you know, we'll hold off. Well, I almost feel like if you're rooting for the hero of the show, the protagonist, which is Molly, then you must be weighing in on the side of that it's frightened. But it's hard to trust it because there's only very few signs that that's the case. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now the opening scene was a little different this week in that it seemed to have a lot of little snippets beginning with Odin and Ethan returning to the woods home. And, and obviously we knew that Odin was up to no good. We obviously we know exactly what he's up to, to in tonight's episode. Then we cut over to Yasumoto Tower and... John, I mean, he's playing like he's being held, but obviously he's known for a little while because he orchestrated the uh, escape for Ethan. Yeah, and actually he thinks Ethan is safe at home, probably assumes that Julie took him home, and now he can proceed from there in figuring out his own way out. Yeah, are you a little surprised that Julie is not more concerned that Ethan's with Odin alone? Yeah, what's she doing down there, playing with Lucy or something? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, she's been so driven to, you know, really be the mother, if you will, that, I mean, does she really know Odin? And, and certainly it's been pointed out to her several times that she doesn't. We also have to remember she doesn't know really what's going on with Molly. So when Odin calls her, she's just like, hey, Odin, what's up? You know, she doesn't know that there's things going on behind the scenes, not just with Odin, but with... Yasumoto and all that as well. So she may just be a little bit complacent right now. Yeah. 
Now, you mentioned Yasumoto and, and that he's perhaps now more of a sympathetic character than he has been up to this point. I don't happen to agree with that. <laughs> but, but this first flashback, which at this point we don't really know it's his wife, although we subsequently find that out. And he's looking at his reflection in a mirror, and it's obvious to us that he's beginning to age, right? He's graying a little bit more. Age spots on his cheek. Right. Takes his reading on his little device, and he now has only eight days of life remaining. That's surprising because he had a hundred and I didn't feel like that much time had passed since the beginning of the series. Right. Although we don't necessarily know whether his, his lifespan, I guess it does elapse at a day at a time, but uh, (laughs) now, now the other, you know, Molly crying over Harmon's dead body. I don't know. Yeah. She doesn't know him that well, does she? (laughs) It just didn't ring true to me. Um, Well, I mean, I guess they'd been in the space program together, but, but he's been dead a while, right? Yeah, that's true. So it's not something that was not already cemented in her mind as already being the truth. Right. But the other thing that, that I really liked in this episode is that I think we now really have a a good read on Kern and, and he's again, one of those characters that, that is he good? Is he bad? Is he good? Is he bad? And, and I think certainly now, it's clear that he is good. He's really working for Molly and with Molly. And, you know, she tells Kern that Yasumoto's behind everything. And I kind of got the impression he didn't know that. Yeah. He actually says Hideki Yasumoto. <laughs> like, you mean the big entrepreneur guy? So, yeah, that was a, a, something of a surprise for him, which kind of shows that he isn't as deep into the conspiracy with Sparks as we may have thought back when he was you know, tight with his buddy Sparks. Right. Now, she calls Yasumoto and tries to warn him about the offspring and, and you know, get your men out. It's going to kill them all. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't wait any longer. Yeah, eight days. He's got to move. <laughs> yeah. And his the strike team shows up and I think we all know what's going to happen. And of course, it, it, it does happen in a little bit. Um, and then the final scene in this opening sequence, we see Sparks and his wife with the offspring and they're driving. And she has gone from this ex-wife that wants nothing to do with her ex-husband because she blames him for the death of their daughter to now the one that's really bought into this whole situation more so than even he has. Yeah, and partly I think that's due to the writers trying to fool us into thinking Sparks really does switch sides later because he's feeling guilty about killing Krieger. And later on, he actually does express some doubts about something or other, but in the end, he is still with them. And perhaps that's because of the persuasion of Anya. Right. And then, you know, we see the scene where the strike team turns their guns on each other. And, and then when we get back to that fundamental question that I raised at the beginning, is the offspring malevolent or frightened? And I guess my question would be, what's it got to be frightened of? Yeah. Same as Kern's question, right? Yeah. (laughs) Frightened of what? Because it seems like it's feeling threatened by those around it but clearly it can hold its own very easily so yeah like you said what what could it possibly be afraid of when it's so skillful at manipulating those around it right and then molly's comment that he'll do anything to protect me i'm his mother well what does she have to base that on yeah it's it's very thin i think she's basing that purely on the bird signals which okay that's great but that's not a whole lot to hang your hat on. No. 
<laughs> now, one of the major storylines focuses on Molly and Kern. And in fact, in tonight's episode, it's it's really like these little pairs of characters, Molly and Kern, certainly uh, the Sparks, Odin and Ethan, John and Yasumoto, you know, all of which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. But, you know, it, Molly describes the this dreamlike state in which she's able to save the baby that she lost in the accident. And, and as she's explaining it to Kern, Kern kind of realizes that, as he says, the offspring's created this entire fictional world to show the person what it is they need or want to see. Do you like the defiance reference there? <laughs> the need one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, this is where Kern is really starting to show his smarts because he's able to figure things out without any kind of bias like Molly perhaps has with her motherhood. So he realizes the baby's getting stronger and they need to do something about it as soon as possible. Right, and, you, and I guess the baby's able to create more elaborate fictional worlds as well because at the beginning it was just the image of the person and a couple words here and there. And now it's entire backstories, or, or so it would seem. Yeah, it's like putting them in a virtual world almost, like sending them into the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> now, she finds all the dead soldiers, calls Yasumoto, and tells her he sent them for her and the offspring's protection. Well, and, good job, Yasumoto. <laughs> well, you know, again, and, and I guess... I know I was praising the uh, storyline at the beginning of the segment when you were reading that <laughs> semi-critical, and then as I, I'm, I'm reading my notes, I'm thinking, does he really believe that? You know, you got all these people that are saying these things they believe, and there's really no evidence that would support that. I think they don't realize that, and we definitely get a lot of evidence in this episode that the offspring can reach well beyond its confines i don't know where it is during this whole encounter is it in the trunk is it in the back seat but you know it can reach out to that sniper behind the tree which is pretty far away yeah but but what would make yasumoto think that molly believes him oh okay i thought you meant <laughs> whether he would believe that his mercenaries could actually be successful but yeah why why would he think that molly would come over to his side i think he does try a bit of persuasion with her later on so maybe he just thinks that people like him are going to understand what a great gift the whole Im immortality thing is and being able to see lost loved ones and everything else. But she's not buying it. No, and I guess he's just so caught up in his own survival. And, and again, the, the big question there is why? What's the motivation? And, you know, we'll talk in a little bit about, well, how old is he? But <laughs> uh, now... Molly thinks she knows how the baby thinks. And, and, you know, again, I'm not sure where she's getting that from. It wants to be with someone who will protect it and wants nothing to do with Yasumoto. Okay, fine. I'll buy that last part. But again, <laughs> what does it need protecting from? Well, she seems to think that it wants its mother, perhaps maybe not to protect it, but to participate in some plan that it has that where she is necessary and she interprets that as protection, kind of like a maternal instinct. Yeah. Well, now we find out also, um, you know, once Sparks pretty much ha has been caught, so to speak, and reveals that there is a person at ISEA who really doesn't know anything, and we can trust him, and he'll sort all of this out. So they go to Ryan Jackson. Yeah, the acting director. Right. And Sissy doesn't know anything. Uh, and he's going to help them expose Yasumoto 
as long as they have the baby as proof. Yeah, they need they need something to prove it to him. But I guess later on they that's what Molly says that they need to have the baby as proof. I think they end up using the um, Aruna video as their proof. Right now, obviously they're trying to track him down, and uh, we don't really have a date established. Right, a, a year for the show. Nope. Um, I'm going to guess 2030, somewhere in there. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're, they do obviously have a lot of technology for surveillance, but, but again, obviously Sparks is disabled it whenever he's got the opportunity. Regardless, they see Sparks' car outside a diner. They find the owner unconscious and a young girl hiding who tells him about a woman who came in and describes the car she drove off with. And then what do you know? There's a picture on the wall. Is that the car? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, but that's another example. I mentioned earlier how the offspring was able to reach out to the sniper. He also was able to reach into the restaurant to make the waitress taser herself. Yes. So he's able to kind of place his awareness, uh, maybe perhaps with the people that are helping him, something like that, because Anya is very confident that the offspring is going to protect her as she steals this woman's keys. Yes, very calm. So, like you said, did the offspring plant itself in her, or is it just operating remotely from the parking lot? Yeah, you can't tell. Is it necessary for the, for it to have someone like Anya there in order to do that, or could it do that with no one <laughs> present? Right, right. Now, you know, on, on the one hand, I, I guess we have to understand Sparks and Anya. You know, they've... they. Feel like they've got Katie. I mean, they can talk to her, they can touch her, she has history, she knows things. They're holed up in the motel room. And obviously, at this point, Sparks realizes, you know, we can only run so long. I mean, this is ISEA for goodness sake, and Yasumoto, they're gonna find us. And again, they're setting us up to believe that he really has been left behind <laughs> by Anya and the offspring when he is supposedly helping uh, Molly later on. So it's a good setup uh, because it's authentic. His little misgivings that he's sharing are real. But when Katie actually says to him, dad, you got to choose some sides here. And they cut away at that point after she issues that ultimatum. And so we might assume that he chose not to side with the offspring and Anya and, and, and changed his mind. But of course, that's not the case. Were you fooled? I, I kind of was, I have to admit. Um, well, you know, on, on the one hand, I, I, I was, but the thing that still puzzles me is this, this whole line where he's saying about there are going to be consequences for what we've done and what we're doing. And I'm wondering what these consequences are that he's referring to, because I mean, the bigger picture is Yasumoto and eternal life. And, and I mean, if if this is possible, I mean, that's huge. Now, on the other hand, you might say intelligent life from another world is pretty huge as well. And of course it is, but I'm not sure what he's talking about. Well, I think it might be referring to the consequences of killing people and having to do certain things you don't want to do and being on the run that way as well. Which I guess in a way is so low level compared to the other consequences <laughs> consequences that we're dealing with yes um now the other thing that kern points out to molly that i think we've all known all along is that every time the baby has created an alternate reality he's had an agenda 
What does the baby need from you? That's true. And this is the first time anyone has brought up the fact that, wait a minute, if this is all happening, Molly thinks it's to protect him, that she, it wants protection. Right. But Kern thinks it needs something. It wants something from you. It's not just bonding with you because you're its mama. Right. It's manipulating her. And, and I think he recognizes that. And, and again, she just doesn't want to see it. She's in this... and. I guess it goes back to having lost the baby in the accident with Marcus. Yep. It's something where she wants this all to be true. The same way Sparks and Anya want Katie to be alive. She wants this child to need her. It's something that fills a void in her. Maybe even some void that Ethan can't really fill. I guess she's verbalized that on occasion as well. So, But Kern puts it in black and white terms, very black and white terms. Maybe he's manipulating you for some other reason. I mean, <laughs> he spells it out. Yeah, yeah. Now, did you forget about Mason? Because I did. <laughs> yeah, I thought. I guess I thought he was down for the count. And but we see him. He grabs Molly in the motel parking lot, and he didn't last long because Sparks kills him. And you know, going back to the consequences, I just don't feel like Sparks is worried about the people he's killed. Yeah. So what was all the guilt for? Well, I again, I think it's guilt. They've unleashed Pandora's box. Yeah, that's true. And, and I really think that he's recognizing the implications of, of that sort of thing. But I guess in a way, killing Mason also helps him trick them into taking them, him with her. But again, why why does Sparks need to be taken? I mean, he says, they left me, it's over. Anya has the offspring, and, and he basically says they left him behind. Yeah. So what's his endgame? Because all he, they end up doing is taking him to ISEA, where he kind of tells his story and then he, you know, shoots his guard and leaves. So it's like, what, <laughs> why did Sparks even do that to begin with? Yeah. And then that kind of begs the question, is the offspring still helping him somehow? I mean, probably not. But, but again, I guess I thought he was just going to go back there and just essentially give up. But like you said, shoots the guard, escapes. and Well, maybe it was just so that he could throw them off the trail. Like if I take them over to ISEA, that's them not chasing down Anya and the offspring. So it, it was almost like a misdirection in that sense, maybe. Yeah. Well, they show Ryan Jackson the Aruna tape, and he tells them Anya knew he was wavering and, and claims he doesn't know where they went. Um, and, and I guess I believed him. Yeah, it's possible that, that they purposely left him out of the loop on that so that he w wouldn't be able to uh, give in under pressure. Yeah, but... He reveals to Ryan Jackson the idea that it was Yasumoto all along, that he is the one that sent the Aruna to those coordinates and that he knew contact was possible. Ah, very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in the mine, because, again, I'm not sure where all of this came from. Well, it, it, I think you're just going to have to deal with the passage of time, like years and years of research somehow yielded the location that Yasumoto needed to send the Aruna to find more meteor goo. Yep. But instead he found something else. <laughs> All right. Well, Molly sets up the classic uh, bait and switch, I guess, if you will, that we've seen many <laughs> times, you know, you bring your hostages, I'll bring my hostage and then we'll trade. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I guess Yasumoto's desperate. Well, the, here's the thing is that, Molly didn't really have a very good plan. I guess Kern was hiding in the background somewhere. But if John hadn't stolen that vial 
of meteor goo, then all would have been lost. I mean, his ploy was the one that actually worked. And by the way, before we go too much further, I should say bravo to the writers for solving my misgivings about meteor versus asteroid. Yeah. Because guess what? It was from a meteor that was on the earth, not from an asteroid in space. So there goes that uh, problem. (laughs) Okay. But the other problem though is we assume John got this vial when he used his little iPhone app to open the safe. Yeah. (laughs) Nice little safe cracking app you got. Well, okay. So they realize he's opened that safe. They don't search him. Well, if you, uh, I didn't notice in this until rewatch, I had the same problem that you're asking right now, but I paid attention during my rewatch and I said, okay, let's watch what's going on here. Uh, Yasumoto says, check the safe. And the guard says, the vial is still there. And then he closes it. So either he did a switch or he's bluffing because he actually says, John does, that is during this hostage standoff here in the parking garage that, you know, you don't know which one is real. So you, you better back off. And Yasumoto does have to back down because he doesn't know. Maybe John does have the real one and he put a fake one in its place. Now where he found a vial and some fake yellow goo, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to nitpick too much, but yeah, that's my problem. So, okay, well, let's just let that one go. Yep. All right. So we've got Yasumoto in custody and now we get the story. And, and, you know, when you and I were talking a couple of days ago, that not that the beginning of the episode was slow, but that it just kind of built up momentum and, and the last 15, 20 minutes or so really were powerful. And you know why that is? Why? It's because the first half of the episode had to wrap up the monster of the week stuff, which I didn't care for last week. And once they got rid of that with the, uh, you know, with all the guards yet again, killing each other. Once they got that out of the way, then, then we got rolling. And so that's why it got better after that. Okay. Well, Molly again, why do you think my baby can save you? And he tells the whole story about the mining accident that trapped him underground for a month. He'd been working for Claypool Industries. And, you know, that, that little line that no attempt was made to save his life, which, boy, if there's not motivation to, uh, to take over Claypool, of course, we, we learned that he outlived them. But they were mining meteorites. Right? Impact craters. Impact craters from meteorites. And that they were apparently rich in minerals, which he doesn't specify what minerals they were. I guess it's not important. Well, you know, asteroids, I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast. They have like huge amounts of precious metals that if we could even bring one asteroid to Earth, we'd be set for quite a while on a lot of the metals that are quite rare these days. So, so yeah, it's, I think that's a, a interesting capital venture there that Claypool Industries was involved in. <laughs> okay. Now, the reason I asked you a few minutes ago about the, do we have a time frame that we're working on is that we learn, and again, I believe he mentions that the time span was 140 years. Right. So let's say it's 2030, like I said, that would be 1890, 1900. Right. Which, um, I, okay, I guess. And that's not even to say that he's not saying he's 140 years old. He's, I thought he said that it's been that oh, long. Right. So that's how long it's taken to search the asteroids origins. Right. Okay. Well, and, and the, I think they've been very clear from the beginning that they don't want to pin down a specific year for sure, this sure. series. 
But uh, one one thing uh, I did did wonder about though is they mentioned something about the reason he was able to rise to fame and fortune was because Claypool initially paid him off to keep him quiet. And I was thinking, okay, is that about the fact that they left him in there for a month and they didn't want him to sue them? <laughs> it's like, why would they need to pay him off just because he was in there? Cause he went back two days later after he was rescued to recover the rest of the substance. So I'm presuming that Claypool itself did not get a hold of any of the, the immortality goo. Right. And that's, I agree with you. That, so exactly. And he says he outlived everybody, took over the company, and then made it his life's mission to discover the origin of the asteroid. And like we said, he searched for 140 years until he made contact with the architect of eternal life. Well, I mean, that's about as heavy a sentence as you're going to get in science fiction or in any fiction. And you can see right there in that statement what Yasumoto's motivation is, which is that he thinks that the offspring can teach him the secret and perhaps help him make a synthetic version of it or supply him with more at the very least. Right. But I love Molly's response. All of this because you were afraid to die? (laughs) You have to put yourself in Yasumoto's head because he was brought back to life, in essence, when he was trapped in the mine. So I guess an obsession of his became living forever. Doesn't necessarily mean that's what everyone wants, but Yasumoto thinks it's a worthy pursuit. And in fact thinks that they've got a bigger calling, a more divine calling, uh, says to Molly, we were both chosen. I found the rock and you brought this life force here to earth. So it's almost like following a religious calling here. Yasumoto thinks it's her duty to pursue it. Right. But doesn't he see the implications of what this would mean? I mean, he says you could be with Marcus again. Well, okay, but then what about John? I mean, you know, (laughs) and does everybody get to live forever or just you? Right. And and we're kind of skipping in between our heart's desires. It's not, it's not just eternal life. It's also being with those who have passed on. Right. And he actually even says, if it wasn't an illusion, but a reality, wouldn't you do anything? Meaning it wouldn't just be a vision of Marcus. It would be the real thing. And I still see no evidence that that's true. I almost feel like the offspring is lying about bringing Katie back, that it's still just an illusion at this point. So why do they think that they'll be able to bring them back permanently? Yeah, I I don't know. Um, You know, Molly leaves suddenly, uh, you know, having realized that Sparks would do anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And... Uh, Richardson's debriefing him and uh, that debriefing didn't last long because he kills Richardson. There was an article I read that actually thought that, that uh, Sparks had killed um, the acting director guy. I've forgotten his name now. (laughs) He's sort of insignificant, but uh, that actually was just some, Oh, Ryan Jackson, Ryan Jackson, but it wasn't bald Ryan Jackson. It was somebody, some other flunky named Richardson. So, so I, I just have to point that out that the guy that Sparks killed was just kind of some guard flunky guy. Right. But apparently it has begun. It's already started. Yep. So uh, <laughs> now the other storyline we saw that began at the beginning of the episode with John and Yasumoto. And, you know, as we've mentioned, they've got the safe containing hundreds of vials of the substance. Although at this point, all of them save one apparently are empty. Yeah, did you see how many rows and columns there were? <laughs> yes, I did. And, of course, we saw in the mine 
the pool of the yellow goo. Um, and of course, we don't know how much it takes to sustain him. Well, especially since we saw him in the coffin, practically covered in the stuff. Right. So, so it almost seems as though the vial isn't quite enough. <laughs> but that's his last amount, whatever the case may be. Yeah, and that was sort of ironic when John tells Yasumoto that he shut Ethan down because he was asking too many questions about what was going on. Yeah, it's almost as though he's suggesting that Ethan is just propped up in a closet somewhere. <laughs> right, and then, you know, the whole idea that, well, isn't curiosity part of the human experience? But obviously he's lying, and I'm not sure why he chose this particular lie to tell, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Uh, we- <laughs> well, Yasumoto is kind of giving him a hard time about the fact that your mission statement for Humanics allows for him to ask all those questions, but I guess he's just making conversation for <laughs> at that point. Yeah, now, you know, we, we talked about the smartphone translation app that he uses to get into the safe, and, and I'm... Well, a- the tra- no, the translation app was to listen in on the conversation oh, right, right, right. Yasumoto and another Japanese fellow. <laughs> right, but then how did he get the combination? That was still part of it. He must have... Uh... Well, he was lurking in the background, okay. so he must have recorded the conversation, and the combination almost seemed to be based on tones. So... That he just played back the same tones and it pushed the buttons for him, which was a little convenient, but at the same time, pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Now, the one thing I understood on one level, but on a bigger level, I'm not sure what his point was. When Yasumoto starts telling John, you know, the whole idea about Vishnu entering the womb of a human woman and then Buddha entering the world as his mother's dream, thinks of the offspring as divine birth. Okay, I get that part. But then that whole thing about there's very little room for Joseph in Mary's story, but that doesn't mean he isn't necessary. Well, who's he talking about, John? Yes, indeed. Okay. So I think, you you know, you got the Vishnu story, you've got the Buddha story, and you've got the Mary and Joseph story. He's basically trying to place divine qualities on the offspring. That's how he sees this. Okay, but then he says, you will play a part in what comes next. Well, what does John do? What's his thing? I don't know. <laughs> Artificial intelligence design. Oh. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, because we keep waiting and we've only got two episodes left, how are these stories going to intersect? And I- Well, it almost seems to suggest that Yasumoto knows what part John is going to play and maybe has a plan for, you know, the neural net of Ethan, just like he was talking about placing his consciousness in Ethan. And all that stuff. Maybe maybe Yasumoto actually has a plan here, and we just ha- aren't privy to it. Yeah, well, we know somebody's got a plan, and that's Odin. And, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, I know it's easy to see him as a bad guy. But, again, those of us that have experienced Skynet <laughs> and, you know, know what the possibilities are, maybe he's the only really good guy in the whole story. But but he tells Ethan his dad was thinking about shutting him down, and Ethan's like, I don't think so. Yeah, he's, he's doubtful right from the start. I like that Ethan is a bit skeptical here. Right, but I do like that Odin, he's telling him the truth, that dad's worried you're advancing too fast, you're smarter than he is, all of which is true. Mm-hmm. Convinces Ethan to let him check his batteries, which... Uh, I think we knew where we were headed with that and takes both of them out, shutting Ethan down and then carries him off. We eventually find out where. Well, especially, <laughs> I think it's very bold of Odin to then call Julie yeah. while he is installing the bomb. 
That's cold. Yes, yes. So uh, I'm not yeah, cold or stupid. I'm not sure which. <laughs> but uh, but on the other hand, I, I mean, obviously she comes and no one's the wiser. So I, I guess it just lends credence to the fact that everything's okay. Everything, nothing to worry about. Well, I, it does bother me a little bit that Ethan starts out being skeptical, which I enjoyed, but then isn't skeptical. Like, I know when I need a flip. Don't tell me I need a flip. Right. And also, when the batteries get put back in, what happened? Oh, well. <laughs> well, I, I think it really does have to do with the fact that Odin has done such a good job of manipulating his emotions, which yeah, I... Yeah, he is a kid. Yeah. He is a kid. Uh, and, and that he really has formed a bond. And, I mean, one of the questions, you know, why is Ethan so standoffish with John? Is it just because of this new friendship he has with Odin and feels like John doesn't really care as much. I, I don't know. I think Ethan has bought into what Odin has tell, told him that his dad wants to shut him down. Yeah. And Ethan is kind of not feeling it with dad. And so doesn't want to engage him in conversation. So I guess that just says that he's starting to believe what Odin is telling him. Yeah. Guys like us have to stick together. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that really resonated with, with Ethan. So, uh, you know, now the final little segment that we saw is once again Sean Glass on Seraphim Station, which is apparently the current project that's going on. And he gets a call. We weren't sure yet who it was from. Obviously, it turns out it's another ISEA team from another country. They, they sounded sort of Russian, but. Or French or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but they have a 584 retrieval and request docking, and then we find out that they'd found an ISEA escape pod. I guess, what they say, floating in space? Is that? Yeah, I guess so. They just, and I don't know whether to believe them. It seems like, well, first of all, we brought in the Haitian. I don't know if you remember the, the first guy that walks through the airlock from Heroes. Right. But, yeah, that actor, I don't, I'm, <laughs> as soon as he walks in, I'm like, don't trust that guy. <laughs> but who knows? Maybe they really did stumble upon this innocently enough and you're not sure is this real <laughs> is this really happening well and not just because of katie yeah and and there you go i mean is it real it, it is this just katie having survived which seems pretty darn unlikely or is it just another manipulation from another intelligence from outer space i mean i don't know there could be more than one life form out there uh, in the asteroids. Absolutely. So. But, well, and that's the thing. Is it that she was kept alive the same way Yasumoto was kept alive in the mine shaft? Or is the offspring delivering on its promise to Sparks and Anya and saying, okay, this can be permanent for you. And it brought her back to life somehow from where she died up in space. So that little girl on Earth may not be the one that, is being bought back permanently. That might just be a representation of, of Katie. And here we've got like, I just picture what if Katie starts saying things like, I don't know. I just kind of woke up and here I was. And maybe she was only aware of that for the time that the offspring brought her back to life as, as a delivery on its promise. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Now the final scene, I guess that's Anya lying dead in that tunnel. Is she dead? Yeah. Right. At least unconscious. Yeah, and that those echoing footsteps in the in the concrete tunnel, right? Man, that was haunting. And we assume it's the offspring walking away at a distance. And if anything, we can determine it's certainly gotten bigger. 
Yep. At least a young child, but because uh, it even looks larger than a baby or a toddler. I would say it was probably a young child. But yeah, having those two scenes back to back was great. Last five minutes, I mean, literally the the final five minutes of the show included the Sean Glass scene and the scene with the offspring walking out. Because remember, we haven't seen it yet and we want to see what it looks like. Yeah. Now, questions, you know, we've talked about a few. Why is Yasumoto so consumed with eternal life? I mean, we saw the flashback of his pregnant wife. I mean, is it is it as simple as that? Yeah, that was puzzling. Why show the five-second flashbacks, two of them, to his wife, and then not involve her, really, in any way with his rise to power? Right. I mean, does he feel like, you know, he knows something about the offspring being able to bring these people that are dead back, you know, the way we've seen with Katie? Yeah, that's a good point. So he might have some aces up his sleeve that we don't know, but I, I'm convinced that he does actually. Right. Now the other question in terms of the ones we haven't already raised, where and when is Odin planning to detonate Ethan? Yes. Is it something where he has a specific target in mind or is it just a display? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure he does. I mean, it's probably all of the above, but, uh... well, we have some theories from our listeners on that score. So we'll let them, uh, share some of their theories later on. All right. Well, why don't we get to the predictions for this episode? And I'll go ahead and start. Okay. And we've talked mostly me, I think about the fact that these two storylines have to intersect at some point. And I I know you always agree with me, but I, I don't think you feel it as strongly as I do. (laughs) I mean, maybe you do, but I think what's going to happen is that, Ethan is not going to get detonated, even though that's Odin's plan. I think the offspring is going to rescue Ethan and deactivate the bomb. Huh. Why would it do that? Don't know. <laughs> that, that's kind of leaving it open-ended, but I, I feel like it would have to have some sort of reason to do that, and I can't really come up with one. Well, I wonder, you know, again, we're talking about like the, the kind of the next wave of humanity, the next wave of mankind. I mean, uh, again, I, I've mentioned it, you know, several times over the last few weeks, the, the connection with Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End and Mankind's Evolution. And I don't know, you know, the whole idea of Ethan and a machine as the evolution of me. I don't know. I, I just think there's some kind of connection. I don't know exactly what it is, but. Well, that would be cool. And, and that just reminded me that you saw that sci-fi was doing a six episode miniseries on childhood's end. Uh, I am psyched. <laughs> That's really exciting. It's funny that we were talking about that several times in our extant discussion, and now they're actually going to put it on the screen. So definitely good watching for extant fans. Uh, well, my prediction is going to deal uh, with the seraphim because we didn't really address in this episode what happened last week and that is that during that dream state molly punched in some coordinates or at least punched in her passcode i don't know about coordinates but she punched in some sort of code she didn't even mention that when she was retelling this tale to kern which i thought found kind of odd that she didn't say and by the way it made me punch in my ISEA code for some reason, even though it had the, the uh, dream sequence had nothing to do with my time as an astronaut. 
So I think that the seraphim is headed towards the point in the asteroid belt that the Aruna was headed towards. Oh, I like it. With some kind of rendezvous in mind. Okay. I don't know, just like your prediction, I have no idea why or what would happen when they got there, but I kind of picture the astronaut Glass. Sean. Sean Glass sort of of getting taken over by one of them and then returning to Earth somehow, but it would be playing the long game to try and figure out what would happen after that, but I do think that they got to be headed somewhere, and that's the only place I can figure. Well, you know, again, I I just kind of look at it as if it's not your typical alien invasion story. It's not, you know, it's not as if the aliens came to Earth uh, to take over and enslave the human race. I really think it's going to turn out to be one of these where the two blend, the two mesh, the two become one, and that there's this new species, if you will, that uh, this is just the beginning. I kind of like that. I, I, I was trying to think of ways in which Ethan could somehow be the savior of humanity, but it could be the sa- that he's the savior of the alien life form. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. I like that. <laughs> well, we've got some great ideas coming from our listeners. So let's move right into our dark matter chatter segment. And we'll start with Christopher who for once does not have the same prediction as me. I actually looked ahead this time to make sure I didn't duplicate his. Uh, But before we get into his prediction, he says, this last episode highlighted for me a striking parallel between Yasumoto and the offspring. Both are displaying a liberal disregard for human life, and a wake of casualties has been the result of their struggle with each other to survive. The distinction? Yasumoto is human and the offspring is not. Yasumoto should know better. I believe he's become the real monster of this series. In his relentless pursuit of immortality, he's lost touch with his humanity to the point where he may not be able to be redeemed. It would appear that after all these years, he cares little for anyone's life but his own. The offspring, on the other hand, is not human. And although it has shown a callousness towards human life that equals Yasumoto's, its misdeeds may not be the result of malice, but simply survival against a sentient race that has thus far shown it little more than imprisonment, selfishness, and exploitation. And Dave, I guess that speaks to what we were talking about with, is it malevolent? Or is it frightened? But Christopher says, as a result, it's treated most humans, it's encountered the same way. Which do you think it is, Dave? Uh, frightened or, or uh, malevolent? Well, to be honest, I don't think it's either. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And before you get to Christopher's prediction, I mean, he brings up some good points that would seem to you know, fly in the face of what I think is happening in that, that they're here to really take the human race to a next step. and so what's with all the the dead bodies? And I think you, you might just say collateral damage. I mean, is that an easy answer? Maybe, but it might just not think of individual life that way. Like consider if it's got some sort of hive mind where if part of it dies off, it doesn't matter. The, the whole lives on. So one of those, you know, collective mind type of aliens could be in play here. Well, right. And also the end result, which will be this new life force, is so much more important than a few individuals. And I I think that's the justification. Yeah. And it could be actually more 
than one life form out there, but th- this is the only one we got as the offspring. Yep. So Christopher's got a prediction. Yep. He says the Katie we see stepping onto the Seraphim station is indeed the real Katie alive and well. Just as Yasumoto was sustained in the mine, Katie has survived by similar means aboard the lifeboat all this time. And we, I guess we sort of brought up that possibility. I also believe she may still be pregnant. I know the time frame seems off for this to be true, but remember that human alien physiology is distinctly different from humans alone. I think Katie is carrying what the offspring needs most for its species to survive, its mate. This thought occurred to me out of the parallel with Yasumoto. Both are fighting each other not only to survive, but to get back the family they lost. And that's the same thing that Sparks is kind of doing with Katie. Uh, But the reality is that Yasumoto's desire would result in nothing more than an exploitative vision of his wife that isn't real, where the offspring can truly rejoin with its family and in turn give its species the chance to survive. That's cool. I like that Katie could be carrying a, another offspring. Yeah. Female, we assume. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we heard again from Gezus, who says that my guess is that the aliens want to invade Earth, but do not have the means. That's why the offspring hijacked Seraphim Station and is going to Earth with a possible pit stop at Aruna. Maybe aliens on the asteroid that Aruna was mining no longer have physical bodies. Instead, they're put in some sort of time capsules holding the remnants of their civilization. After human contact, they're trying to use humans and or Earth to be reborn. Aliens are biological and their bodies are held in suspended animation, submerged in orange goo. <laughs> That's why it has rejuvenating properties and the asteroid Yasumoto dug up is actually an alien capsule or part of it. That I definitely like. <laughs> Also, what if one of the fossils from Yasumoto's collection actually is a piece of an alien who was in the capsule? Now, also, Odin's plan is so confusing. First, he creates a rift between John and Ethan, and now he puts a bomb inside Ethan. It looks like it's not enough for him to show that an android child cannot be controlled and or destroy it. He also wants to kill someone. Is it John, the Humanics team? Ooh. There are easier ways to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he wants to show that Ethan can be used as a weapon and detonate him when he's near some innocent bystanders or more high-profile victim. Maybe spectacle is enough and there's no need for killing. There's a lot of possibilities when it comes to what Odin wants to do with that explosive. Yeah, but does he fear technology? I, I guess that's the question. I mean, when you go back to you know, his story about how he lost his arm and the fact that it really bothered him that the person that took his arm wasn't even facing him on the field of battle that's true that's something that would definitely uh, give rise to those sort of feelings um but again it's like i feel like he could almost be going for a display of sorts and of course we assume that he's going to be foiled in his efforts anyway so but but i do like the the idea that geza springs up that you know there's more to the goo that that it could actually have some um you know, remnants of civilization. I think this idea was brought up before where the aliens might be coming back from the brink of extinction and the imagery that we had with those dinosaur bones in Yasumoto's office. And, and Gezus, of course, brings up the idea that those those bones might be alien bones that he found in the mine or something like that. But certainly there's the whole thing where the title sequence changes from extinct to extant. Yeah. And we might not just be talking about humans when we do that. So Right. 
All right. Well, we did get one audio feedback. Alex says it's his first time. He's calling in from the UK. So let's take a listen to what he has to say. Hello, Mark and Dave. This is Alex from the UK sending feedback for A New World. This is my first time sending in audio feedback, so I thought I'd raise the bar a little. Um, I really love how the series is progressing at the moment. What people were saying about the pacing before is totally irrelevant now. With only 13 episodes and so many plot threads, the writers are doing incredibly well to tell this story. One major point, are the writers trying to find an empathetic side to Yasimoto to explain his motives now? I mean, showing a flashback of his story in a recurring image of presumably his wife seems to me like they're trying to find a way of helping the audience emotionally connect with him. However, I feel this is too late into the story now. I mean, especially since we didn't see him for about two episodes, if I recall. Though I do love now how his orange goo is running out. He has visibly grey hairs, just like Richard Alper out of Lost. The last shot of the Osprey walking off into, with the eerie sound of his footsteps was just genius. It says so much about this mysterious and dangerous character. If he was human, that would spell out pure psychopath. I have a prediction that Odin will try to use Ethan as a weapon, as a bomb, in a high-risk area, putting John and the Humanics team at risk. It feels like it will be a good cliffhanger, and because of Molly's love for Ethan and the offspring's subsequent affection for Molly, the offspring will intervene, as should I say, and that will leave it on a season cliffhanger, and hopefully if we see a second season, then we'll see more of Odin's, Odin's group. Anyway, that's it from me. Keep up the good work, guys. Okay, let's address the first part of Alex's audio feedback first. And thank you, Alex, for sharing that. He says that, like I mentioned, <laughs> you didn't agree with this idea uh, that we brought up before we started recording, where Alex thinks that the flashback almost makes Yasumoto's character more sympathetic, the fact that he went through this ordeal in the mines. You don't agree? I don't agree. I mean, again, I think it's, uh, was it Gezus or Christopher that just said that that they felt like he was so single-minded that he didn't care about anybody. Everything was about him. Yeah, he sent that whole fleet of mercenaries against them again, even after the first round was was killed. Right, and so the fact that he's thinking back to his pregnant wife and that he got trapped in the mine, and well, what happened to his pregnant wife after he got out of the mine? Did she die? I mean, you know, I don't understand... He didn't share his eternal life gift with her. <laughs> I guess not. And so why even show her? I think we're dealing with a loss, the same way that Molly lost Marcus, Sparks lost Katie. I think Yasumoto has also got some kind of loss with his wife, and we're just not, maybe we haven't seen it yet. I hope they share that, though. But what about his idea Alex shared about Odin blowing up Ethan in a very public manner? Well, I mean, I think that's certainly a possibility, and you know, we, we certainly saw that kind of thing with Liberate and Continuum a number yeah. of times. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, but it won't surprise me if it does. No, me either. But I, I actually am also thinking that it's going to be a little bit more intimate when he tries to set off the bomb or kind of hold Ethan hostage. I'll blow it. I'll blow it. I'll do it. No, yeah. that sort of thing. Well, I think the offspring will get there in the nick of time and yeah, defuse it. I like that theory. It's growing on me as we as we continue our discussion. But that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Dark Matter Extant podcast. And we have two left. So keep up with show news and the fan interaction that's going on on Twitter. And there's quite a bit of it out there on Twitter. Follow us at Dark Matter GSM and other Golden Spiral Media podcasts, uh, especially as the fall season gets started. Follow GSM podcasts to find out more. And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of episode 12 of Extant entitled Before the Blood. 
No, that doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't. <laughs> In the meantime, head over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Dark Matter, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. We got a great review, five-star review from ADAC. Thank you very much, ADAC, for that wonderful compliment that you left us on iTunes. You can go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes for a very easy way to leave your feedback and rating. And we'll talk to you next weekend.